This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. I am your host, Chang Terhune. Tribal Malfunctions is a cyberpunk novel set in 22nd century Boston. It is written by me, Chang Terhune, and read by me, Chang Terhune. So please, won't you join me as we now enter the world of Tribal Malfunctions. again to another episode of Tribal Malfunctions, my novel which explores the strange and weird world of 22nd century Boston, a city beset with gangs and conspiracies and mysteries and um, weird drugs. Uh, I am the author, Chang Terhune, and I welcome you to yet another episode of this. I've been enjoying doing this, and I hope you have been enjoying um, listening to them as well. It's a nice little uh, thing to do. Check these out when you're, um, you know, doing your thing with the thing. As always, Tribal Malfunctions podcast contains strong language, so please do not play it in front of children or the impressionable. All music is by me as my cathode ray tube alter ego, and um, the whole thing's by me. So we're up to chapter seven. That means uh, you got six chapters to go. Uh, That's about, you know, uh, two, three, four maybe five hours of listening, so I'm going to give you a little time here to just uh, catch up. up now so let's get going right into chapter seven things are heating up things are getting weirder and weirder in the strange world of this novel and for our protagonist aristotle aguilar aka future pop aka mr a aka the new old man all right and let us begin Free Zone. Boston's Combat Free Zone, CFZ, in police and common parlance, the city's experiment in fully autonomous commercial zones, celebrated its 100th birthday in 2018. Formed amidst one of the hub's most crime-ridden periods ever, the CFZ has become a symbol for drug tolerance and addiction treatment to some, and the epitome 
of the breakdown of civilized society to others. On the day of its unveiling, columnist Harry Crow of the Boston Herald called the opening of the CFC, the great city of Boston finally whoring itself out to the very thing that will be the death of this great country of ours, openly tolerating the drug trade, prostitution, gambling, and extreme sports will undoubtedly lead Boston into the very gates of hell as its creator, Dr. Melvin Shore, cheerfully guns the engines of society's demise. Eric Hesselberg Cortez of the Boston Globe Online, however, disagreed, calling the CFC a logical solution to this century-long nightmare called the United States War on Drugs. After spending trillions and trillions of dollars in useless military raids, mass jailing of innocent men and women, most of whom were minorities, and civilian persecution, all while fattening the pockets of government contractors, it's evident that all but the tactics used were working. The city of Boston once again leads the nation in revolutionary thinking and nonviolent tactics against an oppressive regime. Today marks the beginning of a new era of reason, tolerance, and love for one's fellow man, or woman, or man, or pair of men, women, or both, with or without a mixture of genitals and peccadillos matching your tastes, says Herbert Papazian, owner of one of the CFC's smaller emporiums devoted to, quote, letting it all hang out in one of the most uptight cities in America, unquote. Papazian's small shop, Do It To It, sells everything from condoms to glass pipes, alternative fetish clothing, and smoking accessories for a bustling tourist trade. The centennial celebration's gonna be great, says Papazian. The cops know everyone will keep it within the lines, cause the moment anyone steps out, pow, they'll pepper spray them and throw them in the harbor. I mean, one of the chem prisons in the harbor, not right in the water. That'd be cruel. Others went on to say that they fear the spread of the CFZ and lawlessness spilling into the streets despite the century of peace and stability in the area. This article, excerpted from thisisboston.com, March 13th, 21. Chapter 7 This Blue Heaven The invitation came in a sealed envelope made of lucite or a complex plastic that didn't break during its journey through the mail. That it was sent by snail mail was rare in itself. What it contained was completely unexpected. Oh my God, shouted Minea. What, said Aris, startling from his looking over a parts catalog. We've been invited to a gala event. Aris stifled the snicker as he walked to her desk. She'd unfolded the envelope and held it before her. Despite the translucent plastic, the letters of the invitation glowed bright. Ara scanned it, muttering the words under his breath. Oh, for Christ's sake, he said when he finished. He pulled it from her hands and waved it around. You know what this is? It's that asshole Mehos from Atlas Parts. 
He's just doing this to get us to buy more parts from him. He's not an asshole, said Minea, grabbing the invite back from him and spreading it out on her desk like it was a treasure map. Papa liked him. The old man called him an asshole all the time, said Aris. Well, Papa sort of liked him, most of the time anyway. Still, he's finally invited us to his holiday party at the Liberty Meridian. When was the last time we went there? Uh, never? Exactly, said Minea, picking up the phone. In a few seconds, she was chatting excitedly in Armenian with her mother. Aris shook his head, slid the invite from her hands, and reread it. Yorick Mehos was the local distributor of Atlas Parts, the number one maglev parts company in the northeastern United States. Anyone who serviced an auto hauler or large maglev vehicle used Atlas Parts, either ordering them or paying for a subscription to their Atlas 3D Faker library. The old man was a long-time customer, but because of some Greek-Armenian thing, Mr. A and Mehos never quite got along. Whenever Aras was in the office and Mehos came by, the two men greeted each other with a gruff, Hello, you bastard, before the old man groaned and stood up to make Mehos the fancy Turkish coffee he kept for special visitors. There followed a half hour to 45 minutes of bickering, name-calling, and controlling. When Mehos left, Mr. A often called to Aras from the office. You see that, he'd say. Big shot like him doesn't send any old salesman. Him, the president of the company, comes to see me, old man Ajarian. He'd point emphatically at himself, stabbing his chest with a grit-covered finger. Is that right? Aras would shout back from his bay. Yes, it is right, Mr. A always replied, as if it were a law of nature. These visits slowed but never ended after Mr. A's death. After the first post-mortem visit by Mehos, Aris had to endure Menea showing him where the nice coffee was and how to make it like her father did. Mehos looked on and laughed at Aris good-naturedly, wondering aloud if perhaps he should stay at home with the children so Menea could run the shop in the manner of her father. Aris tired of Mehos quickly, but he was too critical to ignore and kept them stocked with good parts at decent prices. Menea got off the phone and smiled at Aris. Mama says my papa will be proud of you, and you're not backing out of this. Aris groaned. If he disobeyed Menea, it meant months of glares and curses from the old woman. Fine, said Aris. We'll go. But after dinner and the bullshit awards ceremony, we're out of there. I might want to get a room, said Menea. Maybe stay the night? If you're lucky, we might have some celebrating to do. Ara smiled. Okay, if you insist on hotel sex, then I guess I'll go. Aris, honey, relax. We're finally away from the garage. Menea said this during the limo ride into the city. Have some fun. He would, if only he wasn't in hell. It's the price of success, part of him said. You should have stayed at home, said another. A third chimed in that perhaps he could actually enjoy himself, and that any issues he had with the city were a long time ago. 
Linnea booked them a nice room overlooking the park. After he changed into the stiff, rended tuxedo, Aris Channel served while Manea holed up in the bathroom. She eventually emerged, her hair braided beautifully atop her head. Emerald earrings he'd bought for their 10th wedding anniversary matched her sparkling green gown. Wow, said Aris, dropping the remote on the bed, then standing. You make me look like a chump. We should stay in for a while, and you can just slowly take that off for me. Fat chance, said Manea, her smile lighting up her face. We're going down there, and then you're taking me out afterwards. Aw, oh, but you said... Aris choked off his protest as Manea sauntered past him and opened the door. Come on, Mr. Customer of the Year, she said, her eyes glistening. Yes, ma'am. The ballroom was packed with Atlas customers. Aris recognized some and had to look at name tags of others. He found a group of garage owners he knew and greeted them. He and Manea were younger than most of them by 20 or 30 years. All said their condolences to him and Manea, even with the old man well over five years dead. The women fawned over Manea while the men backslapped him, handed him a drink, and resumed telling raunchy, embarrassing stories about each other. Eventually, Aris let Manea drift into a gaggle of wives as he made his way through the room, saying hello to other garage owners along the way. Around one of the corner bars was a loud group Aris could no more avoid than an asteroid could avoid the pull of a gas giant's gravity. And I said he knew a place we could put all that excess hot air, a man shouted. The others answered with a roar of laughter. A break in the group revealed old Mejos, round as a penguin and dressed like one too. Seeing Aras, he waved him in with a fat hand bedecked with rings. Aristotle Aguilar, he shouted, nearly pulling him off his feet. Aris laughed at Mehos, partly in shock at his strength, and partly at how much the man weighed. Mehos ate well, but neglected the therapies most people took to conceal massive appetites within slender bodies. He once told Aris to be a man with a big belly was always a mark of success. You all look here, Mehos said, gesturing at Aris. This man, the one and only Aristotle Aguilar, owns Hori Roller now. Took it over from Big Al Algerian after he passed. A chorus of condolence went around. Aris nodded and raised his glass. You should all be doing as well as him, said Mehos. By buying Atlas parts? Sometimes I think he's throwing them away just to buy more so he can see me. The group laughed, then continued in small talk and business chatter. Soon, the group dispersed, until it was just Aris and Mehos standing together. Ah, just you and me, boy, said Mehos. Tell me, how come you have such a good Greek name like Aristotle, but you're a... Uh, uh, Filipino, said Aris, and shrugged. Mehos laughed. I don't know. Just lucky, I guess. Ha <laughs> ha! Lucky, yes! Mehos shouted, then laughed again, 
slapping Aris on the back so hard he almost fell to the ground. I kid you there around the others, but you're a top five customer, you know? Thanks. Uh, who are the others? Aris asked. Not that he cared, but it kept the silence away. Let's see, Meho said, lifting his head as at least one of his chins disappeared while he surveyed the room. He began pointing out people with a pinky finger on the hand holding his wine glass. Over there is Randolph from R&D Heavy Movers in Hartford. Uh, Vishnu Bhatti from Very Good Haulers up in Fort Kent, Maine is over there. He does a lot of business with the Greenland Scandinavian route. Uh, there's uh, O'Donnell from uh, All Access Garage in uh, Baltimore. And then there's, uh, ah yes, Mr. Cho from Top Choice Garages in Philadelphia and New York. A layer of cool, viscous sweat pulled so fast in Aris' palms that he nearly dropped his glass. Mayhos was pointing at a group of a half-dozen people standing by a table. Of the four women and two men, Nearly all of the women were as old as his mother-in-law, but for one nearly glowed in a sheer, sparkling pink gown that plunged deeply both in front and back. Brown hair cascaded around her shoulders as she laughed brightly at something the man beside her said. He was tall and tan, with a head of thick black hair woven into a glistening dark braid. While Mayhos was fat, this man was enormous, six foot one or two perhaps, and four hundred pounds of compact bulk. Dark sunglasses hit his eyes. The young woman wrapped a slender arm in the meat of one of his while pressing a palm to his lapel. He slid the other arm to her back, finding a resting place at the delta of her partially visible sacrum. Aris' mind tried to force off the connection. Mr. Cho of Top Choice Garages in Philadelphia and New York was Kimo Cho, which meant the woman had to be Baby G. Mayo's words were gone from his ears now, drowned under a carpet of white noise, like he'd fallen into the Mayor Joseph J. Curtitone Memorial Tunnel during rush hour. Ara slowly drew the glass to his lips, hoping the ice didn't rattle too loud. He emptied it, then dropped it on the bar behind him, gesturing at it. The barman refilled it. Aris emptied that in three seconds, gestured for another refill, then held the glass tightly without drinking. Fifteen years of not seeing her. Fifteen years of tamping down the thought of her every time one emerged from the depths. Fifteen years had done nothing to diminish her beauty, nor the image of her standing there on the corner. That was burned in his mind like a solid weld. He forced himself to look directly at her now. Despite the glamour, he could still see the girl he once knew. In fact, he had trouble telling the two apart. Maybe it was fast-tracking the booze, but suddenly, then was now, and now was then. So I'll introduce you, said Mehos, tugging on his arm 
Uh, wait, uh, what? said Aris. Well, you're staring, so I figured you'd want to meet him. He's young like you, unless... What? You're just staring at his wife, said Mahos, the leer in his drunk, thick voice. Aris tore his glance off her back and looked at Mahos. You're thinking... Uh... No, no, I'll pass, said Aris, slipping his arm from Mayho's hands. I mean, uh, not, uh, just not right now. I gotta go, uh, gotta go find Menea. Okay, said Mayho's shrugging. Maybe later then, eh? Sure, said Aris. He clapped Mayho's on the back weakly, then made for the men's room on wobbling legs. Aris stumbled into the men's room with what he hoped was a minimum of distraction. Parties like this had their fair share of people rushing to the restroom before what they drank or ate came back up to haunt them. But how many were stricken by an overdose of their past rushing back at once? He barged into the restroom, nodding at the smiling attendant before falling into the nearest stall. Aris dropped to the seat, fumbling at the door, locking it. There he sat, damp head in hands, and shaking all over. Sweat oozed from his skin, cold against what felt like burning flesh. It almost felt like food poisoning, but Aris knew that wasn't the real affliction. A swirl of images, memories, and emotions exaggerated dizziness and increased his nausea. The hotel restroom was clean, but this whiff of his past was too much to ignore. Aris barely managed to spin around, light reflecting off his patent leather shoes as he dropped to his knees, then vomited into the bowl. His eyes and nose streamed, blocking the sight and smell of what his body evicted from his stomach. If only he could be spared the sound. Are you in need of medical assistance? A voice asked. He looked up to see a blurry hologram hovering over the tank of the automatic toilet. This attendant has a variety of mild analgesics and... Horus waved frantically, and the hologram disappeared. Three more wretches, like his stomach, was torn from inside him, and he knew he was done. He leaned against the bowl's edge after it flushed, grateful for the cool porcelain. He managed an empty, mirthless chuckle at the memory of being in this position so many times during parties at the all-base back in the day, Baby G waiting outside for him to rejoin her. A squeal of hinges brought a momentary rush of noise from the ballroom as someone entered. Hearing shoes scuff against the polished tile floor made Aras lift himself up. Whoever entered slammed into a stall nearby, groaned in relief or agony, then began to shit loudly after the clatter of belt buckle and fabric hitting the floor. The automatic toilet flushed again as Aras sat and waited while his head cleared. Only after dabbing at his eyes and blowing his nose twice did he feel he could emerge. Aris banged the door open to see Kimo Cho exiting his own stall at the exact same time. Cho nodded and gave him a perfunctory smile as he strode to the sink. Aris thought of ducking into his stall again as his stomach lurched. Instead, he took a deep breath and managed walking a straight line to the sink. Are you all right, sir? said the attendant, 
Aris saw he was a pallid, middle-aged man with nearly albino skin and white hair. His accent gave him away as a recent Scandinavian refugee. Yeah, uh, fine, uh, thanks. Aris splashed water on his face. You'd think these old guys would be easy to hang with, right? Cho said from three sinks down. His raspy voice bubbled up from within the folds of his tuxedo in an urban accent without a particular city or region. Yeah, yeah, right? said Aris before splashing more water on his face. He realized he must look like a frantic baby bird splashing around in the sink. He forced himself to slow down, then dab at his skin with a towel proffered by the attendant. Been coming to these with my old man for years now, said Cho, patting his tanned skin delicately with the towel. Used to be he'd do all the talking and I'd just pass out from doing all the drinking, but now he's gone. Cho genuflected, gazing up with his shaded eyes at the ceiling. And well, it's like I got a drink for two, know what I'm saying? It took Aris a moment to decipher what he'd said last. Yeah, said Aris. Yo, uh, sorry for your loss. Cho nodded, then smiled. Thanks. He was kind of a hard ass, but he taught me a lot, so I gotta give it up to him and God. Cho's accent rendered God more like God or Gat. Aris struggled to remain nonchalant as Cho flattened down the almost non-existent stubble on his temples, smoothed his black braided ponytail out, and splashed some cologne on his chins. He doesn't recognize you, Aris thought. Last time he saw you was 15 years ago. We were both in heavy gear. Looked a hell of a lot different. He doesn't even know. This realization made Aris feel weaker. Cho abruptly turned to face him. Aris expected to hear the crack of a fat suit engaging as Cho barreled forward to reduce him and the attendant to a bloody smear on the wall. But Cho merely offered a hand as big and pink as the ham Aris saw earlier at the buffet table outside. Chadwick Cho. He stood looking down at Aris with inscrutable eyes behind a pair of matte black number seven Lokis. Top choice garages. Nice to meet you. For a split second, Aris debated trotting out an old alias like he would have when he was down and heavy before he remembered he was wearing a name tag. Oh, uh, Aris. Uh, Aristotle Aguilar, he replied, amazed he was able to get words out without stuttering, whispering, or dry heaving. Holy Roller Garage. Nice to meet you, too. Pace yourself out there, bro, Cho said slapping Aris on the shoulder with that slab of a hand. He strode past him towards the door. Us young guys got us through shop, so when these old guys fall, we'll be there to take their place, know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, said Aris, laughing too loud. But it clearly didn't bother Cho, who departed with a squeak of fine handmade Italian leather soles on tile and a brief swish of the door. There was a sudden wash of noisy revelry from the ballroom again. Then Aris was alone with the attendant. Aris placed his hands at the edge of the sink, gripping until his rigid fingers went white. Are you certain you're well, sir? The attendant said. Yeah, fine, Aris said, nodding. He dabbed at his face with the towel again, 
breathed deeply, then exhaled so hard he thought he might shit himself. He grabbed the nearest bottle of cologne, doused his hands, then slapped some color back into his cheeks. Never better. Very good, sir, the attendant said with a smile, though his eyes expressed some doubt. Aris left, determined to find the nearest bar and embark on a long, obliterating drunk. He inhaled, grabbed the cool brass door handle, and opened it to the din of the party. Not three steps from the restroom, he saw Baby G emerge from the ladies' room, eyeing her makeup one last time in a hollow compact before she snapped it out, then slipped it into her clutch. Aris tried to duck back into the restroom, but eye contact was made. Her gaze melted and froze Aris simultaneously. Must be how prey feels, he thought to himself. She smiled, then walked towards him on translucent heels. Aris made to meet her halfway, trying to be polite. It was also less spectacular than running from the ballroom all the way back to Somerville. She was impossibly graceful and sexy as she walked, hips swinging in the pink sheath of the dress. Aris stumbled like a service robot with a hydraulics leak left in cold rain too long. His joints felt like bones and parts slamming together so hard he nearly stumbled. Hello, you, she said. Her voice was barely more than a whisper, yet it roared in his ears. Uh, hello, he said, halting, after spending so much time trying to forget the sight of her on that fateful night years ago. He had to dredge up her real name. Uh, uh, Grace, it's uh, I, actually, I, I go by Aras now. She nodded, pursing her lips before smiling at him. Well then, Aras, she said, nice to see you. How are you doing? She planted a kiss on his cheek. The contact felt like it left a burning scar. I'm okay, I guess, he replied. With renewed, profuse sweating, Aris wondered if his skin was as red as it felt. He expected to see steam coming off of his nose. Uh, you? I'm well, thank you, she replied. Later on, a few days later, in fact, as he tried and failed desperately not to replay the interaction in his head, he'd note her speech was different. She'd clearly worked on it, refining, as if taking up with Cho had magically transformed her. Gone was the Vietnamese, Italian-Irish, Moroccan girl born in the wrong part of the Medford Secure Tracts and raised in a series of group homes without knowing her parents. Now before him, stood this glamorous woman bearing some resemblance to his baby G. Uh, what brings you here? Uh, uh, old man Mayhos, he, uh, oh, Mr. Mayhos is an absolute bore, isn't he? She said, laughing. Her teeth, once less than straight, were now gleaming white and perfect. Her skin glittered slightly from a body spray. This made it no less beguiling as unwelcome memories of her naked body exploded in his mind with aching aftershocks in his loins. Mehos is always after Chadwick to open more shops so he can sell him more parts. Oh, is that right? said Aras. He felt a little wind returning to his sails. Same here. So, Cho, I mean, Chadwick is your husband now. Oh, yes, she said gazing out into the crowd before returning her eyes to him. 
He is. Married eight years now. Have you... Oh, of course you've seen him in passing, haven't you? Her eyes indicated she'd fully calculated an impact to her words. What little air he'd gained deflated faster than a burst coolant tank. Yeah, he said, not bothering to hide the sadness that drenched his voice. We just met a minute ago. Oh, did you, she said. Aris felt even more like prey now, wondering how and when her killing strike would come. The longer she spoke, the sharper her words felt on his ears. Catching up, were you? Uh, no, uh, we... Aris' voice caught in his throat as he saw baby G's, Grace's, smile. Are you here with anyone, she said, or are you alone? Nenea, he said, mumbling the name. He conjured up images of his children for strength. My wife, Menea is here with me. Well, do find her and stop by our table, she said, turning to walk away. She gazed over her shoulder as she said, I'd love to meet my successor. Aris watched as she slipped into the crowd with a glimpse of pink-clad derriere and a whiff of expensive perfume in her wake. Once he decided against spending the remainder of the night in the men's room stall, Aris took a deep, fortifying breath and found the nearest bar. Double scotches, he said to the barman, holding up two fingers. Neat. When they were placed before him, he downed both, hissing and snorting as the liquor assaulted his mouth and nasal passages on the way down. Thanks. Three more. The barman paused, then nodded before delivering three more as requested. Aris downed one, dropped a bit card into the tip goblet, then carried the other two drinks as he searched the room for Menea. The liquor was hitting full on as he found her enmeshed in a group of women he vaguely remembered meeting before. He handed her a drink, then kissed her cheek roughly. Well, hello, she said to him. Finally decided to rejoin the party? Sure, he said a little too loudly. Out on the town, without the kids, why not enjoy ourselves? My, 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 she purred. He downed his scotch, then dropped the glass on the table. Taking her hand, he dragged her out onto the dance floor. Come on, he shouted over the music. Want to see you shake that thing. Aristotle Aguilar. She slapped his shoulder as they joined the crowd under the colored lights. The booze helped him power into force bravado, allowing him to maneuver Menea while avoiding Mr. and Mrs. Cho for the rest of the night. Despite the horror of coming face to face with them, Aris managed to enjoy the night, aided by plenty of trips back to the open bar. By the time speeches and awards rolled around, Manea laughed while continually shushing him as he lolled in his seat, his vision doubling and tripling in and out of focus. When the final award of the night was called, the presentation of the latest model dust-to-dust fabrication printer to the highest seller of Atlas Auto Hauler tools and components, Aris heard his name ring out over the PA. He was barely able to stumble towards the podium. In a brief speech, he thanked his staff and Menea, then swung the statue over his head, nearly taking old man Mayhos' eye out. Aris wound his way back down through the cheering audience, too drunk to see Cho's scowl and Baby G's icy smile following him back to the table. After some more dancing, he and Menea left and made their way to their room, 
There they made love, trashing the room like a pair of drunken teenagers in between sessions. She enthusiastically received and returned his attentions with her own uncharacteristic abandon. They'd be reminded of it and laugh when damage charges showed up on their bill at checkout. In the morning, he rose with the feeling of knives lodged in his skull. Aris remembered the previous night as fear clutched his stomach again. He barely made it to the bathroom, tripping over a snoring Manea who lay beside him on the mattress they pulled to the floor. After vomiting for the second time in 24 hours, he once again sat down on a cool tile floor, welcoming the sensation on his naked ass. Aris wiped his face with toilet paper, threw it in the bowl, chasing it with a few spits of acidic gunk from his mouth. You okay, babe? Manea asked in a sleepy voice. Ugh, he replied. Yeah, just a little hungover as... Aris vomited again as he wondered what else he'd forgotten from the previous night and if he could possibly forget all of it. Poor thing, Manea said. Always getting sick. My little man can't hold his liquor. Please, he replied. Don't talk about liquor. Doesn't bother me, she said. Mm, I feel fine. I know, he replied, then mimicked her voice the way she hated. I never get hungover. Armenian women know how to hold their liquor. It's true, she said. We do. Aris groaned and rose from the bathroom floor. Standing in the doorway, he squinted at the room idly scratching himself. We fucking trashed the place, he said. Sure did. She sighed and he glanced at her, sensing something in her distracted tapping on her teeth with a painted nail. What? he asked. What what? You sighed and you're doing that thing, he said, tapping hard at his own teeth, which caused his head to ache. He pressed his temples. It's the thing that says something you want to say, but don't know how. Manea seemed to consider this, tapping a tooth again, while her other hand slid from under the sheet to twirl at a curly lock that had strayed from the loose arrangement of her hair. Aris remembered grabbing it in a way that made her gasp. His sudden erection grew despite the ache in his groin. Manea saw this and smiled briefly before rolling onto her stomach, looking up at him. Well, last night was fun, but she stopped to bite her lip gently. But what? he asked. His sudden tumescence receded as he perceived an argument looming. Kind of felt like sometimes it wasn't me you were fucking, she said. What? Aris' voice was too loud, his head throbbing with the rise in tone. Come on, babe. I was there. You were there. We were together. In here. Yeah, we were, she said. It was good and fun, but sometimes you went off somewhere for a bit. Manea, he said, shifting to lean against the door's other side. Though he wanted to find his underwear, he knew she'd see that as a defensive reaction. I was fucking hammered. So were you. We were having fun. Why fuck with that? Why fuck with me about it now? Aris, the way she said his name, cut through his anger. I know you love me. I know you're my man. And I know you look at other women. 
What? he said. Where the fuck is this coming from? Come on, she said. That ballroom full of all those hot women in those gowns? I mean, did you see that one hottie in the pink gown? What? he said. Again, too loud. He ignored the pinch at his skull. Honey, most of those women were as old as your mom and about half as good looking. You think my mom's hot? she asked. Ara snorted and she smirked a little. Come on, boy. That one in the pink dress? You can't deny that chick was hot. I'd do her. Yeah, I saw her, Aris said. He hoped his skin didn't betray him by blushing or blanching. It was nice. And I know you see that, she said. Don't deny it. Minea, Aris said and sighed. Don't, she said again, then shifted to lie on a hip. Despite her digging at him, he couldn't help but notice how morning light from the window lit her as she lay barely covered by the sheet. Don't deny it, because at the end of the day, I know one thing, Aristotle Aguilar. What's that? He asked, rubbing his eyes, then his face. The day you stop checking out other women is the day I check you for a pulse. <laughs> Fine, he replied, raising one hand to the ceiling. You got me. I'm straight, incurably straight. So straight, I even married a woman. That you did, she said. I know you, boy. After all these years, I know you so well. I know you're a loyal man by the way you love our children, give them a home, and work hard for them and us. Don't forget your mother, he said, wagging a finger. I put up with her too. Yes, you do, she said, wagging a finger back. And for all the shit she gives you and me about you, she knows you're a good, loyal man. I also know she'd slit my fucking throat if I were stupid enough to fool around in you. If there was even a throat left to slit after I got through with you, said Manea. She reached for a glass of water on the nightstand. Aris watched her right breast peek from beneath the sheet. He felt the rise again in his loins. She sipped, watching him for a moment before lowering the glass. Water glistened on her lips. So what do you want from me? he asked. Her smile made him harder, which stung slightly. I want to know you can be present with me, she said. You know it, he replied. Present like I got wrapped up at Filene's on Christmas. Manea groaned and put the water glass back. She threw the sheet off so Aris could see her full, naked form. Can you be present with me now, she asked. He got so hard, so fast, he thought his glands might make a sound like a balloon filling rapidly. I, I don't know, he said. Uh, I'm kind of hungry, actually. Well, go brush your teeth and get back here, because I think I know what kind of appetite you've got. there you have it episode seven chapter seven this blue heaven didn't mean for that to rhyme uh actually not intentionally uh but that's a wrap ending with a little sexy times Ooh, sexy stuff trash in hotel rooms Ooh, yeah that's the stuff you don't want to play around the kids uh there may or may not be uh, more of that 
But you'll have to find out next week, episode 8. As always, uh, check out the website, charlesrtrehune.com. Uh, and with each uh, episode, I post a list of all the music used. Um, it is almost always by me. But if you're listening and you want to, you know, have me maybe include some of your music, see if I can use it in the uh, podcast, I'd be more than happy to listen. Send it on my way uh, by the email contact at the website. Okay, uh, so next week, see you then for Chapter 8 of Tribal Malfunctions. Namaste. Zip it up and zip it out. yourself out there, bro, Cho said, slapping Aris on the shoulder with that slab of a hand. He strode past him towards the door. And that is the dog going to see my wife. <laughs>